Hi, and welcome to Deep Dive with Jamie Stein, where we take a deep dive look at all things reality TV, pop culture, and the world at large. I'm an intuitive and an empath, which means I pick up on the thoughts, feelings, and energy percolating in other people and the world around me. I believe there is meaning waiting to be found at every turn, if you're willing to see it. So join me as we dismantle everything from trash TV to high spiritual concepts and learn more about ourselves, each other, and how we're all connected. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Deep Dive with Jamie Stein. Coming at you in this final week of December, post-winter solstice, pre-New Year's Eve, hoping that you're all in a quiet, restful place of contemplation and visioning for the next year. And I'm here today with what I would consider an overdue episode to jump into the season two of the HBO docuseries, The Vow, about the Nexium cult and Keith Raniere's arrest and the arrest of his co-defendants and everyone attempting to pick up the pieces in the aftermath of Nexium's collapse. To be perfectly honest, I really wasn't initially that excited by the second season of The Vow. I enjoyed the first season because I thought the content was really interesting, but I didn't think the execution was necessarily all that great. I thought it was bloated. I thought it was a little too long. I didn't necessarily love the narrators who were taking us along on the ride. And I didn't necessarily see or feel the need for a second season. So when a second season was announced, I found myself greeting it with a little bit of skepticism and thinking maybe this is just kind of a cash grab for HBO and really wondering what story is left to tell. And I have to say, I was proven very, 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 very wrong in that I actually found this season to be more compelling, more provocative, better told as a story. It's a leaner, cleaner six episodes. And I think it really, in a way, benefited from the first season being a bit of a pop culture sensation because suddenly they now had access to so many different points of view. We weren't just watching the story primarily from the lens of the whistleblowers who were on the outside of the core circle. Suddenly we have people who are in the core circle, most notably Nancy Saltzman. And also in addition to that, a clear intention from the filmmakers to really present a well-rounded perspective on the cult itself. So not only are we hearing from people like Nancy, and not only are we hearing from people who feel they were victimized by the cult, we're also hearing from people who still subscribe to the beliefs, who still support Keith. So I just really felt like it presented a much more comprehensive view that really took us more into the details and the methodology of how Keith was working, the way he was grooming these women, the tools of manipulation. And then again, getting a real firsthand look at these people trying to make sense of what has happened in the aftermath. And like I said, I mean, to me, this show really found its footing in the second season. And I really, really enjoyed it and found it provocative and interesting. So I just thought, how could we end this year without touching down on it and uh, seeing what wants to be revealed by uh, jumping back into these Nexium waters? And 
of course, who better to join me in this exploration than what has become my kind of cult comrade in arms. I am joined today by, yes, returning guest of the podcast, Anne Bradney, who, as I've explained before, has a very particular, a particularly valuable point of view as someone who's actually created her own transformational and professional program that I went through. A lot of you ask me, what is your training? What is your training? And while I've never been officially trained in anything like intuition, I did have a transformational and professional training program that was Anne's program called Radical Aliveness. And in a lot of ways, it's everything that something like Nexium purports to be in the sense that it is about personal empowerment. It is about self-responsibility. It is about helping people open up to their gifts. It is largely, largely, I wouldn't say the reason, but it, it has been a major vehicle in me doing the work that I am doing today. So her input, her perspective is always uh, just such a privilege and a treat to have here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Anne. Hi, Jamie. Thank you. How are you today? Good. I, I was excited to be here and talk about this because it was such an intense unfolding after season one with so much more information. So I'm happy to be here with both of you, two of my favorite people. And yes, we are also joined by a very familiar face and voice, cherished friend of the podcast who always just brings her own brand of very deep wisdom, intuition, and compassionate insight. Welcome back to the Deep Dive, Piper Sample. Thanks, Jamie. Hi, Anne. Hi, Piper. And how are you doing today, Piper? I'm here. I'm post-holiday, ready for the new year. Okay, great. So yeah, in terms of feeling into where and how to start, I think for me, what I'm just so aware of on a big picture level is that both seasons one and two of The Vow really feel to me like they're ultimately examinations of the nature of self-responsibility. And I feel like for me, the first season was really about self-responsibility in the sense of the danger that can ensue when we're so willing to defer power to someone else or look to someone else for providing us with all the answers, how it sets up a culture where a cult can flourish and then we end up betraying ourselves. And that's certainly baked into the second season, but I do feel like the second season, in terms of really taking place in the aftermath of Nexium's collapse and the subsequent arrests, to me, this is in large part about self-responsibility in the sense of when you wake up to something that you've participated in that is perhaps not good and you've been a part of it not being good, how do you navigate and hold that sense of responsibility for yourself? And I think there's also a larger question just for us as viewers sort of looking in from the outside, when you have so many key players in this docuseries, and we'll get into it as the conversation unfolds, who initially start out as what we would call victims of Keith's manipulation. But then in the process of the manipulation and deferring their power, become perpetrators themselves. How do we hold that in terms of our relationship to them? And that line between having our compassion for them and their struggle and also wanting to hold them accountable for what they've done, which to me, I feel like can also be translated to a much 
more macro level in terms of just this human journey, though most of us will never end up in a cult or criminal situation, I think we're all navigating this balance between holding space for where someone comes from and what they've gone through that perhaps colors and influences who they are now, the decisions they're making, the actions they're taking. And again, also wanting to hold people responsible for things that they might be doing that is destructive to others. So I think there's just something really fertile and juicy here baked into all of this. And For me, I think just as an introductory note, I just think sort of what's interesting from a big picture level is just seeing the different levels of people grappling with self-responsibility. So I think on the one hand, you have people like Mark Vicente and Sarah Edmondson, who obviously woke up to something bad happening earlier, and their way of dealing with it per the first season was to essentially be the whistleblower. I have a feeling we're going to get into this, but, you know, my experience of someone like Mark is that there's a way in which he's willing to take ownership of the experience, but there's also a way in which it really feels like he's still holding his personal participation in the experience at bay. And perhaps it's easier for him to make someone like Keith just, I mean, I think he even says at one point in the second season, he has no soul to make him this soulless monster who's just the evil engineer behind all this. And in a way, it kind of absolves him of deeper responsibility. Then, of course, on the other end of the spectrum, you have the people who are still, you know, aren't even acknowledging that anything's wrong. And you have, for example, Mark, the gentleman who had Tourette's, who just, you see it, he refuses to even entertain the possibility something as bad has happened here. And there's just like this refusal in him to hold the possible complexity that he got something out of this that was beneficial, and yet still it was deeply destructive and needed to be stopped. And then in the middle of all this, you have who really feels like the main character of the second season and the woman who I think's on the tip of everyone's tongues, who is Nancy Salzman. And I think probably we'll start there with her. I mean, just as sort of, again, an upfront general note, I just found myself so fascinated by her trajectory on this season. I watched the season twice, the first time just as a viewer, and then the second time to prepare for this podcast. And I have to say, in a way, I think I was a little more forgiving of her the first time because I was on the journey with her. And then I would see these moments where it would really feel like she was dropping into a deeper awareness. And it was clear, it was clear there was something settling in. If you look at where she starts, I think it's her first episode where at the end, she's just outraged that none of the 17,000 people who benefited the program have come forward to like speak on her behalf. And then you watch her have these moments of, oh, this is the moment I realized Keith did something wrong. You know, and then you watch her have these moments where she's literally breaking down into tears saying, essentially, what did I participate in? Maybe I deserve to be in jail and to think about what I created. You have these moments where she's saying, I edified him with my endorsement and my authority, and I'm going to have to live with that for the rest of my life. So it does seem like there's this dawning awareness in her. And yet, at the same time, it still feels like, there's so much that she's disowning. There's so many instances and examples we could get into. I mean, maybe just to touch on one thing, just as like an introductory note, 
I keep coming back to the fact, again, that at the start of this, she's insistent, essentially, that she wasn't really aware of what was going on, (laughs) and that there was the good that company was doing, and then there was sort of Keith's secret personal agenda in the background. And these two things were separate, and her indignation that everything she's worked for that had such good intentions is getting thrown out with the bathwater... But then as the season goes on, she starts revealing more and more about what she was aware of, including, by the way, the fact that he slept with her very early on and then broke it off and then told her, hey, if you're going to work with me, I don't ever think you should be in a relationship with another man, which, okay, maybe there's a way she's, you know, it's playing into her shame. It's playing into insecurity. Maybe she justifies that somehow. But then a couple years later... (laughs) she's finding out that he also slept with her daughter. And at that point, we know she at least has the information of, oh, he slept with me and made me take this essentially a vow. He's now slept with my daughter, led her on, promising to get her pregnant, which was a false promise, depriving her of her prime relationship years. And throughout all of that, she also mentions having to manage the repercussions of his sex life. And then at the end of the season, after she's been sentenced, the judge makes a comment about you brought your daughter into this. And just like, she's just incredulous that this judge would imply that she had somehow, I mean, she didn't quite language it like this, but that she had failed or betrayed her daughter in some way in bringing her into this. And I'm just sort of sitting there looking at this like, well, not in a judgmental shaming way, but you did have this information. You did bring your daughter into this. You got info about what he was doing with your daughter and you stayed. So I know I'm saying a lot all at once. I'm just really holding her particular journey, which feels very, it just feels (laughs) multidimensional. And like I said, I hold her in the middle of all this with these different points in the constellation around her of different degrees of denial, different degrees of self-responsibility, and her almost as like the, I don't know what to call it, the the vessel or the externalization of the one who's trying to sort it all out. So that's kind of where I'll end my little introduction. Having said all that, I guess, where are you two in terms, if we start with Nancy, if that feels like an okay place to start, what has come up for you? What is coming up for you? Is anything happening as I say all this? So for me, Nancy and Mark, the Tourette's man, and maybe Nikki, who was in the inner circle, what I saw is that and I see this in the world, I see it everywhere, that when we have privilege, when we are given like gifts or when we have certain privilege, it behooves us not to see the consequences of that privilege. And so for me, what I saw with Nancy is that She got so many goodies. She got recognition. She got, there was one spot I was watching her when everybody's clapping and she's crying. And I'm thinking, I know what that feels like, but it's not fucking real. It's not a reflection deeply on who you are, but it can so easily 
feed a place where you feel like this is who I am, this great, wonderful, fantastic, better than human person. So I feel like there was a lot of privilege where both Mark and her said, we're doing so much good. We're doing so much good. But the good in some ways felt like it was not just about the people in the world that were being done good for, but also such a personal place of identity. I am doing good. I'm doing good. This is important. This is so important. I'm so important. I am so important that I will not see, I will not register, I will not let myself see what's happening here. Because if I see what's happening here, I might have to walk away, I might have to lose everything. So for those two, I had this feeling, and I think Nikki also, who I think was part of the inner circle, and I'm imagining people who were underneath that inner circle, felt much more abused, right? Nikki was somehow special and important to Keith and part of the inner circle. So for me, it makes me see, and I'm saying, I'm seeing it everywhere in the world, the way that people will not see the bad things that are happening in an organization, in a system, in whatever they're involved with, they will not see it because they want the goodies. And so they're willing to suppress some kind of awareness of what's going on. And with Nancy, like you said, I saw her in the beginning saying she knew nothing. And over time, you hear how much she saw, how much she knew, how much she was willing to go in and try and fix his bad behavior so she could hold on to what felt like her life's work or her business. And that wasn't the only choice. Like kick Keith out and continue on without him. Get rid of the rotten thing at the head, you know, if it's not somehow part of everything else. But that could be done. People could have stood up and said, no, Keith, this is wrong. This is bad. You're out. Yeah, I think, you know, as I watched her interviews and took in the method in which she worked with people, the way she separated body and mind, the way she did something in terms of overriding certain intuitions, certain ways of understanding something and oppressing a feeling in order to get something, get the goodies, whatever it is, choosing not to have Tourette's, choosing not to see what she, how she was participating. And I don't think she was ever trying to fix Keith's behavior. She was asked by Keith to work with people that he was feeling were reacting to his sexual deviancy from their perspective and make it okay so that he could continue to do it. And the fact that she acted as if she didn't know something, even though she was being asked by him to work with people around issues they were having in relation to him, I found that 
very interesting in terms of what you were saying, Jamie, you know, like when people are abused or victimized and then they become the abuser or the victimizer, I was like, I thought that was her participation all along. And this whole, the notion of ethics, the fact that this whole thing was built built around ethics and morality, I was like, I mean, I just want to know like what was ethical about any of it? What were the ethics? What were the principles that they were basing their decisions about how they were talking about breaches? I just don't understand why Nancy didn't ask more questions in relation to what Keith was asking her to do. And when she was working with people, how was it that she wasn't getting information from the people that she was working with? Well, she was getting information, but she was using it to push something down. And I just, there's something about that, that even the method in which she was working that I am still sitting with, it feels so, I don't know, like it impacted me deeply to feel how many people use these type of methods, the expert model, as we call it, you know, and why Nancy, of all people, was so able to be victimized by Keith in the way that she was when she was teaching the exact opposite. Like there's something about the people at the top not being like Bonnie, for instance, to me, I think Bonnie in the first season, for me, I think I remember her being like a person that was like, wait a minute, I'm actually taking in what you guys are teaching and I'm bringing it back out and I'm not buying what you're doing here. I I have choice because Mark and Sarah, I don't know, there's something about the two of them, the way that they um, moved forward with this. I agree, Jamie, with the, there's something that's not completely holding accountability on some level about their participation and what they did. Yep. And in terms of Nancy, since we're talking about her, even the methods that she used with Isabella at one point, it just felt to me like when Isabella came home and was talking to her parents, you know, and her parents, her dad was just like, he's like Mark and all the other people that are like, oh, Nikki, I'm in a, you don't have Tourette's anymore. And she's saying, no, it takes something for me to do this. This is, it's my work that I'm doing every day. They gave me some skills and some tools, but I can apply them and also say no to what's going on here. And I don't know why Nancy couldn't do that. And like, well, I think I do know, and it's what Anne said. She was getting goodies. This was her company. She was not willing. She said it in a few interviews, like her work of 20 30 years was not going to be denied. There was this one point that I thought was really revealing where she was talking about going in and fixing all of Keith's sexual escapades and saying, I didn't want to be doing that. I wanted to be working in my business. It was a distraction. It was a fucking distraction right? It's, she's looking at that. I'm going to do whatever it takes to calm this down over here. It's a distraction so I can get back to my good work. And as an organization, the fact that her and her daughter were human resources. HR. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. I could not believe that when they, when they mentioned that. I mean, isn't the whole point of HR that it's supposed to be 
kind of an independent department within the company, <laughs> like a third party independent department that can objectively evaluate things and step in. I mean, the idea that the co-founder and co-creator and her daughter are essentially acting as HR and that's not raising any red flags for them in terms of ethics. HR is telling people to get branded. <laughs> exactly. What I do find so interesting, speaking of Nancy, I mean, there's a couple things that come up as I take in what you guys are saying. I mean, one, Piper, I think it's so interesting what you're talking about, about this notion of choice and what I choose to see versus what I choose not to see. And in a way, kind of disassociating from the body. And I just think about that moment in one of the later episodes, I think it's the last episode, actually, where Nancy is taking care of her parents. And her mom is hovering around nearby. And Nancy kind of catches herself and is worried, oh, did she hear? And did she hear what we're talking about? We don't talk about this. And then she literally says, we're not going to... Basically, she says, we're not going to talk about my possible jail sentence until the sentencing is right around the corner. And then also just in that same scene, as she's contemplating her possible jail sentence, it's one of the several moments where she starts compulsively laughing, which I was just so drawn to. She has this way of holding these really serious topics and and breaking out in this kind of, again, what I'm calling compulsive laughter. But to me, it was just such interesting information. I just was watching these small moments thinking to myself, oh, here it is. I mean, you're saying you're not going to have this conversation with your mother until the last moment. Like, here's the capacity for denial. Here's the capacity for not being in the full reality of what's going on, for splitting off from something. So to me, it was just interesting, just in terms of holding these individuals, perhaps, and where they're even coming from in their lives and how they operate and what makes them perhaps particularly susceptible to fall in line with a system like this. It seems like there's something in Nancy already that splits and doesn't want to look at what she doesn't want to see until she has to see it. I was so curious. What does it take for her to want to see it? She had a her other daughter who refused to have sex with Keith was shunned. And she said Keith hated her, just really didn't like her. And she was trying to make her daughter make peace with or do whatever it is that she needed to make up for not knowing that that was the reason why. but And then her daughter's interview, the one that was kind of shunned, it was like, we trusted our mom. Whatever our mom, the fact that she trusted Keith this much, we were like, we're in, we're all in, even if he's doing weird things. So to me, I think, like you said, whatever sort of informed Nancy, but Nancy also informed these girls, her children. And so the fact that she couldn't even see that, I would imagine these are the people she loves the most in her life. What would it take for her? What did it take? She still, I don't think, sees it all the way. I actually feel like that that we're seeing in all of them is such a human issue. I think a lot of people don't see things in order to belong or in order to be part of something. And I think it takes a lot of work and a lot of courage to be able to speak up. I mean, how how did the Nazis do it? How, right? It's there's something that people, human beings do 
to belong. And I think there was something really interesting. This The people who got so in there and were really part of the ongoing community, not the 17,000 that came and went, but the ones that stayed, there was this creation of family connection, community, and the threat of disconnection. And that happened with Nancy when Keith said, don't you ever do this again. They're like, by the time people are that in, and then there's the threat that you are going to be shunned. I think it's such a primal human experience to be terrified of being shunned when there's that feeling of, I'm going to have to give up everything. I know I'm going to have to give up my friends. And I feel like that shunning was always present in some way in the background. People were made special and people were shunned when they did not tow the party line. And I think that making the people special, isolating them, their specialness too, where it wasn't like a, the way that he did that, I think was significant because I would think in a community like that, there'd be enough people when you found out, oh, I'm being told that I'm going to have a child with him, but oh, he's telling 12 other people this too. Why would you not have these conversations with these people? And I think that's where like the competitiveness comes in. He did something very specific to make them feel like they were more special than the next one. And if they were to question Mm -hmm. the next special one, like and go into cahoots, somehow he he must have made them feel as though they were gonna, like he pitted them against each other somehow. I was just so curious, like why did they not band together and oust him? I just didn't get it. I think you're right. If you, he successfully created an environment where in a way, if you question him, that becomes potential to use their language collateral against you. So if there's a competition for being the best disciple of Keith or, you know, the best person to Keith, the second you question anything, that is ammunition that can be used against you because that's suddenly your ethical breach. So it just sort of fosters this whole environment where even if there is a suspicion or a doubt, the second you vocalize that, you are risking your place in the hierarchy. And again, I just keep coming back to that word collateral. You're giving your peers collateral Mm -hmm. to use against you. And even, you know, with Vero speaking about how exactly, I mean, her ethical breach and her quote unquote character flaws became fodder for public consumption. And she said everyone felt like they had the right to basically point it out, to call it out. And, you know, it felt energetically very much kind of like a, I mean, it felt cruel and it felt like a form of bullying in a way and a shaming, very much kind of like a Lord of the Flies situation. And I think to also bring into this in terms of what would prevent you from wanting to see, you know, I do think a lot certainly about having to come to terms with the fact that you're not getting the return on investment on your time, energy and loyalty that you thought you would like, meaning the more you put into it, right, the deeper you get into it, the more time and energy you invest, the harder it is going to be to let the veil lift from your eyes because then you have to reckon with everything that you've sunk into it. But 
in terms of the shunning, I have to imagine a lot of these people are already people who have a relationship to feeling like an outsider or feeling devalued. And again, it wasn't lost on me that little moment between Nancy. I mean, Nancy already shared about being called my little dummy by her mother and wanting her mother's approval. But just that moment in the last episode where there's Nancy again talking, oh, we don't we don't talk about this in front of my mom. And, you know, I'm not going to talk about the sentencing until it's time. And her mother just makes that comment about, I never liked him. And Nancy says, I know, I know you never liked him. You were right. And to me, it was just so interesting. I just couldn't help but feel that flavor of, this was something to Anne's point that was validating Nancy in a way that I don't think she ever felt validated. And apparently there were outside voices, at least from her mother saying, I don't like that man. And her saying, no, 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 I like this. I'm doing it. It's good. I'm getting something from it. I'm proving something. And so then it's like, if you let yourself see what's going on, not only are you then essentially you know, pulling the rug out from under your own feet and having to witness the collapse of something that you believed in. But if you're still very much in this paradigm that believes these outside messages that have been coming in, let's say from your mother, that, you know, you're the little dummy, in a way, it's also in the child's mind, right? It's proving her right. And so that part of you that felt like, oh, I'm finally like being seen. My value is finally being validated. These are the people that get me. And then it comes out that you're putting your time and energy essentially into a cult and not just like a cult, but like a criminal cult. Well, then on some level, I can imagine how it confirms your deepest sense of shame or your deepest sense of feeling misunderstood and just kind of like a fuck up. And yeah, why would you want to surrender to that? I want to say again, to me, there's nothing that happened in this series really that feels any different from, in some ways, what happens out in life, what's happened for me, what happens for most of us. What what does it take to be willing to, to see? Because I think that it's really easy not to see things when you're benefiting. I mean, I've seen that in my own life. I see it in the world, I don't think it's just people who are so wounded in a certain way. I think most of us, maybe in this culture, are wounded in that way. And I also think that what Piper was saying that got clearer and clearer through this final season, the systematic separation of mind and body, like systematic separation. You cannot trust your body. Your body is something to be overcome. Your mind is the ruler. You have to, like something that took people so far away from this deep knowing that we as human beings have, we have it. We know when something feels bad. And the way they were taught not to listen to that part of themselves as part of the curriculum, and that it was weakness to listen to that part of themselves. And what looked to me also very interesting was it looked to me like the methods became more cruel as time went on. So when Nancy started talking about punishment and punishment started coming in, I was so 
thinking, where is this coming from? Now, first, you've got this great curriculum that's helping people feel better than they've ever felt. And now you're feeling like you have to punish them. And then you're feeling like you have to get collateral from them in order to keep them in line. It's it built. I was thinking one more piece about what kept her blind to something was what he did with her, which was any approval that she got was from the people that she was working with or from the community. It wasn't from him. He was very cruel to her, like in those place, like those few little shots where she would interrupt him or try to add something. And he, I mean, there were looks that he gave her that I just felt her shrink. And I thought, and I remember her saying something to the point of his lack of being able to give me something there made me work harder for his approval. And I think that drive to get his approval first and foremost, not own her own experience of who she's helped and whether or not it felt helpful. It was like she focused on something outside of herself that I think was part of what kept her also from really not being able to feel her own cruelty that she then, I think, I think that's where that cruelty started coming from is she was becoming abusive based on the way he was abusing her. That's just the way it felt to me. Yeah, there's something I really want to say about that. But before I do, just to go back to Anne, what you were saying. Yeah, I was so drawn this season to that whole, if you want to call it like philosophy that started coming through around essentially, yeah, judging certain impulses in yourself and coming up with punishments and consequences for yourself. Because to your point, you know, when they explore the initial stage of the program, for example, the EMs or working with the Tourette's, I mean, we got like a limited glimpse into the curriculum. I actually, I would love to watch like all the modules and all the curriculum. I'm so into it. I'm so interested. But um, the little that we got of it, to me, what feels powerful about it, and to be honest, I actually really related to it in terms of my own work, which is, you know, what I saw what were spaces where they really create space to slow down what is happening with someone, whether it's a particular fear from the past, whether it's working with a tick, but like, let's just create space and room for you to be with, I mean, this is my language, but you know, for you to be with this as energy, to really slow it down. If you don't resist it, if you don't, again, this is my language, if you don't resist it, if you don't judge it, if you don't shame it, like literally what is happening when you drop the story and can we start to identify where is there a story coming in? Like in the example of Tourette's, oh, there's this itch, therefore I have to scratch it. And I'm interpreting that thought as a quote unquote reality rather than realizing if I slow this down, there's actually space for me to sit with this and to make choice. And so, yeah, I felt in these early stages of the program space and room to slow down and to be with your experience in a way that is more nuanced and granular so that you can kind of, in a way, I guess, catch up with your adult self and separate out previous experience that's maybe leading to default destructive behavior, right? But then to your point, yeah, as the curriculum unfolds, then we start hearing from Nancy about, well, how do you, I mean, first of all, just even labeling certain behaviors as bad. I mean, I forget the exact word she used, but negative or bad, which to me, 
immediately that just creates resistance within the system. It's like the complete opposite of the spaciousness I felt in those early EMs. And then your way of dealing with it isn't let's investigate it, find out more about it, find out the underlying wisdom. Instead, it's like, okay, let's come up with a punishment that's going to be your impetus for not doing it anymore. And what was really striking to me was that as Nancy was retelling this present day, huge smile on her face. She's still tickled by this and seems to really still see the value in it. I was so drawn to the culture he created of being in resistance to yourself. And yet just that culture of like, there's a good part of me and there's a bad part of me. And this work in order to be quote unquote ethical is resisting, mitigating and taming the bad parts of me. I mean, I think part of me is just bringing this in in terms of, you know, I know we were talking about this more in the last episode of making people aware of like warning signs for things that might be cult-like. But I don't know, part of me just wants to say if you're in a program or some sort of whatever you want to call it, some sort of space where things are being framed in terms of judging yourself and being in opposition to yourself rather than being with yourself in some sort of compassionate, spacious way, I'd really think twice about that. And I think the last thing I'll sort of bring into it too is some sort of energetic connection to me. And I think it was you, Piper, who was bringing this in earlier, like just really sitting this season with the fact that it's not just that Keith created a cult. It's that he created a curriculum that's literally supposed to be about ethics. And they all thought of him as the most ethical man in the world. And that it was under this umbrella of ethics that he was performing all this unethical stuff. Again, there's something about that for me. This It's almost like I experience it as just, I mean, you can't see me at home, but I'm like bumping my fists together. It's like polarized opposites clashing against each other. It's like tension. It's resistant, opposing forces. That's the word. Like these opposing forces that were at work under this umbrella of Nixium. What I saw watching this second season, first of all, how many people did you see looking at him as if he were God incarnate? All of them mm. seeing him as God as infallible. So that was one thing that was baked into the whole thing. Keith is God, and we have to believe everything he says. And then the curriculum, as far as I can see, was all about not being human. I mean, it was about becoming perfect. Mm -hmm. It was about being perfect, not human. What an abuse, as far as I'm concerned, to instill in people this idea that we as human beings are striving for some kind of superhuman perfection that requires us to deny so much of ourselves. And it's for me, it's also, it feels like the pinnacle of our Western culture of turning ourselves into commodities, of trying to become the best, of always growing in a certain way that has nothing to do with becoming an 
integrated, compassionate, living, breathing, fallible human being, which as far as I'm concerned, is what we need to do to have compassion for this world. So it feels like the combination of setting himself up in that way from the very beginning and everybody buying into that somehow, and then what they had to do to themselves because they were seeing this power outside of themselves as the pinnacle of human achievement. Yeah, well, in a lot of ways, what you're speaking to, Anne, speaks to what else I've been sitting with, which is you spoke about, for example, Nancy's cruelty. And I just keep thinking, too, about, again, that moment. I think it was in the final episode where she talked about how I think her name, one of Keith's members of... Pam. Yeah, Pam. Pam was dying of cancer. And this moment where he casually mentioned to Nancy, oh, you know, she's soiled the bed. Or I think maybe he said she wet herself. You have to go clean it up. And and Nancy, as a nurse, wanted to go over immediately. And he said, no, 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 it can wait. First, make me breakfast. Now sit and talk with me. And then when she went finally to uh, check on Pam, she had literally defecated herself. She had no means of getting up. She seemed near death. Nancy ended up calling an ambulance. And Nancy said in her interview, she said that was the moment where something like turned for me that I never came back from. And then she also said, that's when I realized essentially everything we're saying. It's Keith is setting up this paradigm of ethical behavior. And yet everyone else has to live up to it except him. And so again, to me, it was just interesting because this is another one of those moments where I'm thinking to myself, okay, you started out saying you were unaware of what was going on. And now you're speaking to a very evocative, horrific moment where you realize something very clearly and specifically. And to the point that we're addressing, clearly you then stayed beyond that point. So you were continuing not to let yourself see something. And so I think what I just keep coming back to in all of this, and in some ways, I guess this all just feels really simple, but it's like, when, especially when I think about Mark Vicente, because, you know, he feels here with this as well too. It's, it's watching these people reckon with the fact that they did participate and they did do cruel things. And I mean, that's the other thing. Isabella, the Tourette's woman, she mentioned, I guess, after her Tourette's symptoms had started getting cured, but she was still unhappy. And that's when Nixium was really, you know, kind of putting the screws to her and making it her fault and shaming her. And she actually even said, Nancy sat me down and told me I was attention seeking. She told me I was being difficult. I just thought that was interesting information. Again, Nancy sort of painting this one way of like, what Keith was doing was over here. The curriculum was separate and it was pure. But then here we are hearing from at least one person that she was an active part of this shaming and this really like turning her humanity against her. And so I guess for me, it's funny because you mentioned the Holocaust and that's sort of what I've been thinking about this whole time, right? Obviously, this is the thing. It's when people like Mark want to say Keith is soulless, he's a monster. And it's not just them. Like I hear people even in, you know, in the zeitgeist say, oh, Keith's a monster. Or when Trump was elected, he's a monster. And I'm always sitting here saying, don't call these people monsters because they're not. You know, to your point, Anne, they are human beings. And when we label them a monster, we disown our own capacity 
to go towards cruelty, to have our own blind spots, to indulge parts of ourselves, you know, to not look at things when it benefits us. And so for me, I kind of keep sitting with the question of if we as fallible human beings have this capacity in us, if you are a member of Nixium, because the other thing I'm thinking too with Mark Vicente, for example, last season, I just always go back to that moment where I forget exactly the details of it, but Bonnie is kind of amusedly recalling some moment where as part of the punishment scheme, he was having her like sit in a dog bed or something as some sort of sleeping on the floor in a dog bed. And she was laughing about it. And I think Catherine Oxenberg was laughing about it. And then Mark gets really upset and, you know, comes in, this isn't funny. And you're making light of something that was horrible. But to me, it just, I, I remember feeling like his anger in a way, had so much to do with his disowned guilt of that he was participating in this. He was having her sleep on the floor. And I just couldn't help but wonder, to what degree were you getting off on the power? Or to what degree were you enjoying that? And so I guess for myself, what I'm saying in all of this is I do feel, I feel the capacity for the negative pleasure in these people and what they participated in. I feel the capacity for the cruelty. I feel it. And so whether it's these participants in the Nexium cult, or if we're going to take it to this extreme, someone who's living in Nazi Germany, right, who participated in the Holocaust in order to belong, I just keep coming back to this question in terms of self-responsibility. How do you let yourself see, oh, wait, like I wasn't, this wasn't just a case of me being this kind, good person who got led astray, I participated. I participated in something. I did something, quote unquote, bad. And to let yourself see that, to let yourself know that, I mean, maybe I'll just start there. Like, how do you let yourself... Because it just feels like that's what's being pushed away here. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, I was really drawn to when Nancy was talking about Alice Mack and talking about how she went from a victim to a perpetrator. And she literally said she was a good person who thought she was doing something good. And that's why she did this stuff. And as I'm sitting there taking her in, I'm like, well, are you viewing Alice in that way? Because that's also the story you want to tell about yourself. And even Vero said it at one point, which is like, these are good people. And I was just sort of struck to how many people were sort of using this language of, we were good, but he led us astray. And it's like, oh, God. I don't know. There's just something there that it's like, but what's getting skipped over here that you don't want to look at? I hear what you're saying. And I, I think there is a lack of self-responsibility in that, like not really owning the participation aspect of it. And I want to say, like, I recognize things that I've participated in, in hindsight that I wasn't comfortable doing. And what allowed me to do it or what I chose to do around it was especially in rooms where these are all consenting adults, you know, in a room and I'm questioning my, my sensibility, you know, like I'm looking at a room full of people. Everybody seems to be doing the thing that I'm opposed to or not seemingly opposing what I'm opposing. And I questioned myself, like what's wrong with me that I'm not seeing it the way everybody else is seeing this? What is it that I need to be learning about myself to tolerate whatever's going on here? 
and see it as a good thing or see it as a beneficial healing thing or whatever it happened to be. And I did a few different things there to try to negotiate. Like sometimes I would leave, you know, like there, there was a few things that would happen in a room where I'm like, I just can't witness this. And so I would leave or sometimes I would look around and see if other people didn't seem to be okay. I might lean towards where they were and kind of gravitate to see what was going on over there. But I still, I don't think I stood up and said, this isn't okay. What would have happened if you had? Because that's the question, right? All the machinations we go through to question ourselves and to make something okay. But what would have happened if you had? Well, there was, I can remember something specific that happened in a process one time in a group where I did. And I was made to feel like I was saying no to what was happening in the room. Like I'm oppressing something that's trying to move. Maybe I was saying something like, this doesn't feel safe. This doesn't feel okay. So I was made in some way to feel like I was stopping the process. Like I was, I was putting the brakes on the process that was trying to emerge. Chaos was trying to ensue. And somehow I was interrupting something that was trying to work itself out. And so I think what I heard there was whatever in me isn't okay with where this is feeling like it's going to go, I need to be able to hold for myself in some way and not put it out on everybody else. Did that come from me? Um, I know. I was like, this sounds like a radical aliveness process. (laughs) It was very early on, but yeah. I think I remember that actual, we were in my office in Santa Monica, right? It was very early on. No, this was when we were at Temescal. Oh, so I was there. You were there. Yeah. Oh, I was there. This was a big one. But yeah, it was a place in me where I also didn't understand my position. Like, I think when we debriefed about it later, what I was told or what I took away from was that I had a position. I wasn't a participant, even though we were participating. And that my role was to hold space for what was happening, not to be stopping what was happening, to trust the process, really. And I was very confused about what my role was because I was like, well, if I'm part of this process and what's happening, I have a very strong feeling about, and I'm going to say no to something. I was, I was almost like I was my belief about myself at that time was that I was being cruel, you know, like that I was the cruel one trying to stop someone from being in their power. I mean, I have a question about what you just said. I hear you speaking to a part of you that was hesitant to speak up and to maybe not be a strong opposing force or maybe to even participate for the sake of going along with what's happening in the room What I don't hear in this particular instance is an actual enjoyment of abuse of power. I don't hear actual cruelty. And I want to be clear, when I'm bringing these things in, hopefully this is obvious, I'm not saying this in a way to shame or judge 
you know, these people for their humanity. The whole point is we all have this in us. And the fact is, I am someone who believes if you are someone, let's just say again, going with the like one of the most horrific examples who let's say got swept up and participated in the Holocaust. I believe on some level, you should be able to forgive yourself. I think any of us should be able to forgive ourselves for anything. That doesn't mean though, disowning self-responsibility for what you've done and answering for it in whatever way it is right to answer for it. And I think that's kind of, again, what I'm bringing in here when I bring in this question of how do we let ourselves see the things we have done? But yeah, I just kind of wanted to make that differentiation of like, I'm really speaking to the part of them that enjoyed the power that they had or in the place where they were special, enjoyed lording it over people and they did some stuff. Cause that, I mean, I'm look, I'm sure there are many different parts of this they don't want to see, but that's the fl- Like that's the thread I personally really feel here of like, I'm not going to look, if I'm Mark Vicente and let's just go with this for a second, hypothetically, if there was part of me that fucking loved putting Bonnie in that dog bed on the floor and enjoyed the power of that, I'm not looking at that. Keith's the bad guy. I'm not looking at that part of myself or if Nancy is out there sort of shaming people because of her own disowned stuff and the cruelty she felt at the hands of Keith. And this is her way of reclaiming power. I'm not looking at that. Like I will not look at that. And uh, yeah, so I just wanted to bring in that distinction and also to hold this question of, yeah, how, how do we as human beings look at the quote unquote worst parts of ourselves and forgive ourselves while also not denying the full impact and responsibility of what we've done. I think that is such hard work. And I don't know that most people do it. Mm-hmm. And for me, even I'm thinking about sessions I do with people or, or even my own process there's a place where when we participate in something, we are also deeply betraying ourselves. And in the self-betrayal, we are so capable of perpetuating harm Mm -hmm. on others. So I feel like I was blessed to have a way to really come go deeply into my own self see the pleasure I got out of being special, see the ways that I was unwilling to see the impact on other people, see the ways that I kept excusing the leader and thinking that he was right, feeling justified and feeling better than and feeling justified that people were being made bad. And it was such an unhealed young place in me uh, and also old place in me, right? I mean, it wasn't just the child. There was an adult there that did not want to grow up and take full responsibility for what I had to see about myself. And when I went through that whole process, I remember sobbing and saying, I would have been a Nazi. I could easily have been a Nazi. This was on a small level, but what I did was the same. And so for me, like doing that work wasn't about condemning myself, but it was about being willing to look straight in the face of 
I mean, what would you call it? It's almost, you could call it evil. The, the part of me that could do those things. And thank God I had an opportunity to get out of it and to, to see and to say, I never want to do that again. And I want to empower other human beings so that they will not do that. Mm-hmm. And just to give context, just to explicitly name it, you're speaking to an experience of your training. Not of my original training, yeah. As a core energetics facilitator. Yeah. I mean, we don't need to go into detail, but there was a culture there that set up people being special and there was leadership that abused power. And you're, you're talking about your own experience of having gone swept up in, into it and having played a part in it. And then, I mean, because you, again, we don't have to go too detailed into your personal experience, but you actually had an experience of seeing something and then taking a stand and separating and then being exiled, I guess, to the point that we're making, you know, it sounds like you did the work that perhaps, for example, Mark Vicente is not doing yet of really sort of looking squarely in the eye, the way that you participated, what you got out of it. Yeah, because in that place, if Mark looks squarely in the eyes of what he did, he's no fucking different from Keith. He's no different. He was on some level doing the same thing, participating in in the same illusion that was being created and getting goodies for it. And until I think he does that work and stops seeing Keith as the bad one and him and Sarah or whoever walked away as the good ones, I mean, there's nothing more liberating than being able to look at a place where you have participated in something that was harmful, whether you were being victimized and you didn't speak up or whatever it is, and finding what was it that I wasn't willing to feel in that moment and what was I not willing to face. And for me, almost always when I see that, it's a place that really doesn't want to grow up and take the consequences of what it truly means to be an ethical person, which is to say, I am willing, I'm willing to stand up and speak. I'm willing to lose the goodies and the privileges. I am willing to lose all of this because I won't stand for this. I won't be part of it. And I think that's, it's liberating. I wish Mark and Sarah would do it. I think it takes something also to do that, which is a belief that you can stand on your own, you know, an understanding that you don't need what it is you've invested your time, your energy, your beliefs, your what you thought was going to save you, like whatever it is that has held you there in the first place, you have to be willing to let all of that go. And to know that you're going to be okay, because there's something about the survival aspect of it that I just want to bring in also that, you know, when you talk about sort of the Nazi culture, it's very different than these processes, but is it, how different is it? There's a way people hold the energetic of belonging and survival. And if it's kill or be killed type of mentality, I think that will allow someone to participate in ways in order to to keep their life, to keep 
to stay alive. And I think that the idea, am I willing to lose my life for this? Am I willing, like even with um, Daniela, am I willing to be out without my passport? Am I willing to leave this room and be barefoot out on the streets and just have me and my life out here to leave this? Oh, there was something so amazing because while you're talking, I was thinking about our culture and I was thinking about just the whole individualism and the way that we're taught that we are standing on our own, that there's nothing supporting us. What a bunch of bullshit. The air is supporting us. The earth is supporting us. The water is supporting us. The trees are supporting us. There's so much that we're a part of. And that that illusion that I'm going to be completely on my own, bereft, and the thing that set her free was the cardinal. I thought that was amazing, that cardinal that flew in there and reminded her of the rest of the world and kind of woke something up in her. So I feel like our culture also perpetuates a belief that we are not connected to more than just our own hard work and like we didn't come from anywhere. There's nothing supporting us. If I let go of this community, I'm going to be completely alone. It's just not the truth. But what I find so interesting is that, you know, you guys are speaking now to when you're still in the womb of the cult, right? But for someone like Mark and Nancy at this point, you know, they're out of it. You know, Mark has broken free. So then sort of the question becomes, what possibly prevents him from, you know, as we're talking about really taking a hard look at the part of him that has things in common with Keith, that participated in certain things, that got negative pleasure. And what I'm suddenly so aware of, it's just so interesting because it's almost like that same division between good, bad, right, wrong. There are parts of me that are ethical. There are parts of me that are in ethical breach it's still at play right now. Like he's still viewing himself in this binary way. And yes, there's, it seems, again, if if we're right about what's going on inside of him, you know, that there's this aspect of him that's like, if I let myself know this about myself, then yes, this means I am fundamentally bad. It means I'm a monster rather than being able, like you're saying, and to, to hold space for his own humanity. And I just think there's something here about just the multidimensional experience of being able to look at something you've done and to hold it with the compassion of this is an aspect of my humanity and alongside that taking full responsibility for it. And so that feels like sort of two pieces of the puzzle for me in terms of like, I just keep bringing in this question of like, how do we support ourselves to let ourselves look? And so it feels like one, looking all the way, two, doing it with a compassion to understand this is a part of my humanity. And then three, this aspect of, and then, and I think you were also speaking to this too, and like answering for it, you know, so depending on what it is, if it's a crime, then okay, <laughs> maybe I got to go to jail now, like Nancy, or, you know, maybe I got to go make an amends. Maybe I have to tolerate losing the relationship because I've done something that's broken a trust, but that you can hold these different threads at once without 
making yourself a quote-unquote monster. And, you know, I think the last thing I'll say about this is just what I think is so interesting about your story, Anne, is that in a way that experience, it was a rebirth for you in the sense that by looking at what you did, it made you so clear, I never want to participate in this. But beyond that, I want to create something that is specifically in opposition to this, which I have to imagine, right, in large part was the impetus of radical aliveness, which is creating the space to welcome all voices, to say yes to everything, for everyone to have that freedom of expression. So I'm just bringing that in because it was actually, if you, if you had stayed in the binary place and hadn't wanted to look at your own participation and felt the full force of that remorse, then you may have been depriving of yourself from the full depth of that experience that then inspired you to say, this is what I want to go and do. So you were on your spiritual journey. I mean, it's what I'm calling your spiritual journey. And it was in fact, your willingness to go all the way into the depth of that darkness of self-responsibility that then brought you to the next place in things. And so it just starts, for me, that's what I start getting curious about for the Mark Vicentes and the Sarah Edmondsons. It's like, what are they possibly depriving themselves of here? Or Nancy, if they don't look all the way, what are they what are they keeping themselves from in their journeys? There's this quote by Solzhenitsyn that says, if only it were so simple that their evil was out there, there were good and bad people. But the truth is, good and evil cut through the heart of every human being. And I feel like there's something about the willingness to look at ourselves fully, to look at Keith fully, to really see our capacity for doing harm that also, for me, gives me such a deep compassion for human beings and also such a deep willingness to stand with them in places where maybe they're not conscious or they don't know how to get there. And I know I'll stand with you while you go here, and I promise you, you know, I'm not going to see you as bad because this is not all of who you are. And I feel like Mark and Sarah, I'm not sure about others, um, definitely the inner circle, they're still seeing things in the binary, good and bad. And they will not see themselves as part of a more grown-up, mature story of humanity, which is we're all composed of all of that. And we're all doing good and creating harm all the time. Like what I did with Piper, that was hurtful or hard, like whatever was going on in that moment, which I kind of remember. I remember I was definitely trying to stand for my vision and it felt like Piper was getting in the way of it, you know? So I was like, be quiet. But, you know, we're all, we're all capable of, of all of this. And if they can't see it, I feel like they'll go on perpetuating this false story of monsters and good people. And they're the heroes. They're the heroes that brought them down and put them in prison for 120 years. And good, it's good they stood up, but there's more. Their responsibility. Yeah. I was just thinking about something that Sarah, the information she was getting about Lauren testifying in court 
And she had this moment of, you know, she was holding Lauren as such a, an abuser of her. She brought her in. She's the one that got her branded. Like somehow the, her lack of self-responsibility was pinning Lauren as this sort of evil person for a while. Like she can't be my friend. And then all of a sudden feeling what happened to Lauren that made her maybe be the way that she was. But I never heard Sarah once talk about all the people that she brought in. Or say the same thing about other people who were in the same position. Lauren was her friend. So she's writing to the guy. She's forgiving Lauren. But what about all these other women who were in the same position? There's no speaking of wow, something terrible happened to them too. Maybe I should be writing the judge for them as well. And maybe she did, I don't, you know, and it's just not voiced there, but I don't get that vibe from either her or Mark in terms of what was I willing to do? What was I willing to do and why? Yeah, and then of course, I mean, of course, we can also take a step back and really bring Keith into this and bringing in the fact that something made Keith you know, to be who he is. And, you know, we don't really know much about him. I mean, there was quick reference to his manipulative mother. And, uh, you know, it seems to make sense given his, uh, <laughs> his fondness for sort of controlling and manipulating women. But, you know, I, it just sort of brings me back around to what I was bringing in at the beginning of the episode about just our willingness to hold everyone in the scheme of humanity and that, yeah, like absolutely, Keith has done some incredibly destructive things and it is right. I mean, in my opinion, it is right that he's going to jail. You know, it's like time for him to pay the price and to also understand that this is a human being who came into this world. I mean... I guess maybe there's some sort of theoretical or philosophical things that we could like talk about or debate, but I have to assume came into this world whole and healthy. And something went on there that broke something inside this man. And just even willing to hold that space for his humanity in all of this. You know, I, I think about people's personalities and maybe their vulnerable weak spots, right? And I saw this show about Daniel Ortega, who was the freedom fighter in Nicaragua, who became the dictator and has stolen all this money. So he started as someone who was fighting for the poor. And when he won, he came in as this hopeful person for the country, but power corrupted him. And so I'm thinking that there are people who have maybe, what would you call it, a limitation in their personality or something. So when Keith got in that position and he started getting more and more power, I feel like whatever that limitation was in him really allowed him to become a monster because, I mean, he feels monstrous to me. And it feels like who knows what would have happened if he had never had all that power, but he got a lot of power and it was unchecked and he went crazy. 
Well, that's also what's so interesting to me because as I was rewatching it in the last episode, as I was holding all these different threads and I was thinking about Mark and I was thinking about Sarah and I was thinking about Nancy and, you know, it suddenly just dawned on me. I was like, unintentionally, right? Keith's prerogative, you know, his, obviously his main intention was just satisfying his own, his own egoic needs and, and predilections, right? But unwittingly in all of this, look at what this guy created. He held up a fucking mirror to these people. I mean, if they choose to look at it, right? And so, you know, I always sort of come from this idea or this belief that the ways that we act out or the ways that we get destructive, you know, you might call it the ways that like our energy is distorted. I always feel like it also carries some seed of what, I mean, to use a language like the higher self would be or the essence would be. And so it just, it wasn't lost on me in all of this of this guy in creating this like fucking crazy, sadistic hall of mirrors of ethics in ethical breaches and being at odds with yourself, he did unwittingly lead these people through this machine of take a look at yourself, take a look at what you become. And I just thought that that was really fascinating. I was like, he actually did lead them through something that could be hugely illuminating for them on such a deep, powerful level if they chose to accept that invitation. And so then, yes, of course, it does lead me to wonder, God, if this guy had been supported to not be so destructive or to sort of pursue whatever gifts he actually has in a constructive, heart-based way that was actually of service to others, it makes me wonder, like, what would if he created? Because this Nexium thing was so huge in its scope, And its implications, again, for our humanity and how it relates to things like ethics and where we're willing to go and how blind we're willing to be. It's almost like, you know, it reminds me of like the Stanford experiment. You know, it's like you could almost look at it as it became this big experiment for these people to really see how far they were willing to go to not see. Not see. I uh, heard that as I said it. It's interesting. It's so interesting somebody like Keith who creates something by using other people. If I just feel the constellation of him and all the people that he had around him and what he did to keep those people around him and the way that he possessed them, like Lauren, I think after he got arrested in Mexico, like she was like willing I'm willing to do the thing that you've asked us to do. And then it dawned on her in that moment that he was not willing to do that for her. And so there was something about what you were saying, Jamie. I was just sort of feeling the question of what is it in a human being who has the potential to bring people together to create something, you know, really profoundly life-changing on so many levels and yet have it be just off a bit where they're centered in a way that nobody else was centered in that. He was the center. It was all about him. And yet every time somebody, like when Allison, he asked her a very specific question about what you were branded with each little stroke that happened. What what would you have wanted to hear there? And she said something and he's like, well, you have to think of everybody else here, not just 
She goes, well, I thought you were asking me. And he was like so cruel in that moment and like made her feel like some narcissistic person. And he had asked her, it was like classic gaslighting situation. You know, I was like, wow, how, what is it in him that he is able to do that? And like, I don't know, it felt so intentional to me. Yes. And the way that, what did, I think it was that exact scene where he said, ha ha, it would be a great poster for a narcissist. Are you asking me? (laughs) And I felt, oh, how much was he doing that? And Allison Mack felt like such a vacant Mm -hmm. human being. I mean, her, uh uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. We're going to tie them down. We're going to make them ask. Uh huh. Uh huh. And I wonder about how skilled he got at making people question themselves and feel bad. Yeah. He literally took the material. It was like, like Teal Swan, right? Takes the material that they give them for collateral, your deepest shame, and then holds it and lords it over you to puppet master you and to to use it at the right moment. Nancy, you know, like I think if we're talking about a skill or a power that is distorted, that is a deep one. And he systematically also went after families. Like I think about the Salzman and I think about that family with Camilla and Danielle and all that. Like he literally, like a lion, separated these, you know, the herd so that he could go after the weakest one. It was like, it was so like a primal mm-hmm. strategy. What I was trying to figure out, let's say he had all this spiritual power, like you're talking about, Jamie, and that he had the capacity to inspire people, that he had the capacity to bring people together, that he had the capacity to make people feel like they were doing something, that's some kind of power, right? And I see that sometimes people's definitely in connection with spirit, the ego can come in and take responsibility for something the spirit is doing. And then once that happens, we're in trouble. And what I wonder is, was Did he just grow into this as his power grew? Did he become, or was he always this way? Was it intentional? There was a lot of different things coming to me around Keith throughout all this. There's a bunch of things coming to me as you guys are talking. So I'll just sort of list them all and then we can see what happens. But, and when you were just talking and you were talking about Keith's power, what just immediately came to me was just the notion of thwarted power. And I heard the words like, I'll show you what I can do. And so I just got this energetic sense again. I mean, I always it's funny because they mentioned his mother this season. And that's always sort of I mean, I guess it doesn't take Freud to figure out. I mean, obviously, he's got issues with women. But I always kind of felt stuff around mom, you know, and so then they mentioned the manipulative mom this season and her ashes made a little appearance. But I just got this like sense of the possibility of like, so he's this powerful human being, you know, we talked about this with Teal, you know, maybe he comes into this world, he's this powerful guy. Clearly, he's got this relationship to parsing things out on the granular level, like his mind is like really sharp in that way. And yeah, this notion of like some opposing force to use that word again, 
coming in and thwarting his power and disempowering him in some way. And then, yeah, giving rise to this voice. And when it's like, oh, you're going to thwart my power. I'll show you what the fuck I can do with my power. So I kind of feel that here as like part of the fundamental groundwork. And I know last time, last season, what I felt from him, and especially in terms of DOS and the sexual exploitation, to me, the vibe I got off it was what I feel when I sometimes feel into serial killers. And so when you talk about the primal systematic of going after the families, like I feel that that tone, that flavor of like the serial killer. It's like, I know he wasn't killing people and he wasn't dismembering people like Jeffrey Dahmer, but that's what it feels like to me. Like I'm getting into the guts and my fingertips are in the innards and just this like, the and it feels erotic to me, the erotic pleasure of the power and the control of being, yeah, the puppeteer who gets to mess with people and fuck with people. So that always feels here for me. But having said all that, what was really here for me this particular season, because I don't know about like diagnostic personality disorders. I mean, I don't know technically what a narcissist is or a sociopath or a psychopath. But this time around, I definitely felt one, I just get this sense like he in the moment, I think he believes his own bullshit. Like, I think that he believes his own bullshit in the moment, almost like an improviser, like in the moment, he's just going with whatever feels good and right to do in the moment. And just some sense that he's, there's something in him that's so disconnected and we might say broken that he's sort of buying into his own bullshit at any given moment. And then with that, what I also felt, and I hear this talked about a lot in terms of those diagnostic terms, I could just feel the complete lack of empathy. And that there's just, it feels like at this point, there's no capacity for empathy. And it's just like, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I, I don't, that basic human experience of empathy for others, like that chip at this point feels missing. So I know I'm not like clearly answering any question, but these are just, these are the different things I felt in Keith over the years. And I I guess as I sort of come to a conclusion to this thought, yeah, it feels like something somewhere. And as I'm saying this, it actually feels young. It feels young. Something somewhere turned. It's just like something got turned off. A choice was made, again, to use the language of like, I'm out of here. I'm splitting off. And I'm closing the door on some vital aspect of my humanity. And I'm walking into my own hollow mirrors. And I just don't give a shit about anyone or anyone else. And then I'm just hearing the words because no one gave a shit about me. I'm getting an image now of like a boy. Now suddenly it looks almost like a preteen or pre-adolescent walking into like a hall of mirrors and kind of disappearing from, I want to say humanity. And then of course, you know, it always leads me to question, can someone like that, if I'm right about these images... Could he ever reconnect? I don't know. It's like the same question we asked about Teal. I mean, it sounds like from his prison cell, he's appealing. I looked it up to see what he's doing. He's appealing. He's maintaining his innocence. He says he's been misrepresented. What's so fascinating is he's a victim. And he's talking about there are no victims. He's like the ultimate. Exactly. Exactly. Oh my gosh. It's just like Teal. It's like you promote this concept of the universe that there is no such thing as a victim. Like in, in the curriculum, they talk about 
even talking about abuse as a form of abuse. Maybe he's not using the word abuse, but how are you squaring this with your own philosophy? If everyone is at cause for what is happening in their lives, how are you not at cause for what's happening now? And then my real question is, for the people who are still following him, how are they not asking these same questions? Or even for themselves, you know, what in them is at cause for where they're at right now? Every single one of them was saying, something so good happened to me. I became a father. I it stopped my Tourette's. I felt more empowered than I've ever felt in my life and somehow cannot reconcile in their own beings. Like I think you said this earlier, that this could have happened, but there's also something very rotten in the organization. And what is it that that will ask them to, to look at? And it looks like for those people, it's too hard for them to actually look at it. And then Mark and Sarah are a level down. I don't think they're looking at it either. Not sure about Nancy. She was so strange. <laughs> laughing at the, the butt plug and laughing hysterically and going, so fascinated by this. And I could relate to her impulsive saying of something like that in the moment. But just there was something so odd about her and her reactions. And like you said, the place where it's registering and then the place where she's really not willing to see. When I have kind of poked around a little bit intuitively towards Nancy when she laughs, again, in relationship to her prison sentence, and then when you bring in the butt plug, for me with her, what immediately comes is just, I can't, it's a very particular flavor of, I can't take in the horror of this. Because I actually think Nancy strikes me as very sensitive. And I do feel in her like a real curiosity about the world. I mean, I feel these parts of her that feel so alive and wanting to engage with humanity and the human process. And I guess this is all just to say, again, I, I do think there's something very sensitive about her that can be dialed into things. And then, yeah, when I just kind of feel into like taking in those sex toys, it's just like the word horror keep like this was a horror show. And I just I can't let myself feel the depth of the horrific like I can take in a certain amount of what happened here. And I think that's also why because to me again, it just felt like by the end, I just got the sense I don't think you've taken in that this man slept with you slept with your daughter tried to sleep with another one of your like again this is horrifying this is i mean i don't even know what the right language is this is this is like it's just horrifying and i yeah i just feel something in her that's like i can't take in that level of gross horror the grotesque what i was getting earlier about the people that are still defending him you know the people like the mark character nikki the one woman who tried to get a job at a restaurant and then got ousted out. It was like, they're there to vindicate him so that they're vindicated. It's like Mark was saying something to the effect, like I can't go out and continue on this work when all of this other stuff is attached to it. So Keith has to be found innocent of these wrongdoings in order for me to continue 
doing the work that I was doing there. Like I can't have, I can't separate it. The world will not, like there's a belief in here that the world also won't be able to separate it. And I think it's because they can't separate it. They can't in some way let themselves feel like you were saying earlier, there were good things that came out of it. And there were very problematic things that were existing simultaneously. It's not either or. These are happening at the same time. And you participated in both. And I did appreciate that Nancy, Nancy actually said, I think it was in the last episode where she named, like, because they had a good experience, they can't take in that other people had a different experience. Yes. And they were in a different position. They were closer to Keith. Their experience was they were getting all the goodies that came from the way they were participating, where other people down the chain weren't having that same experience. Even if they did benefit on some level, they didn't have the attachment that they had with these the people that were higher up. If I just let myself follow that thread of Nancy not being able to take in the horrific nature of this, and again, you know, obviously this is just me intuitively spitballing, but it's almost like I have this sense of Nancy already had a relationship to this experience of the horrific or the grotesque. And obviously, I don't know much about her personal history. So who knows if I'm right or wrong? I mean, the one thing we do know is that her mother suffered from some sort of chronic pain. And so even in that, I could feel the possibility of something around that of like chronic pain. I mean, again, I don't know what that was. I don't know what kind of treatments her mother was getting. I do know from working with clients of a certain age that, you know, there were times where things were treated in really kind of like horrific and grueling ways, like, you know, tuberculosis, for example, like back in the day. And so this is just me intuitively playing around. I do. I just get this sense of this possibility of if Nancy has to take in the full horrific, grotesque nature of what happened, it taking her to a deeper experience of her relationship to the grotesque, her experience of the grotesque and the horrific in her own life in a way that she was never, I mean, in a way, as I'm saying, it could make total sense in terms of the way that she kind of shuts things down and nervously laughs. It's like, I get this feeling like there was already something in you that couldn't, wouldn't let yourself see the horrific nature of things that were going on. Or again, your experience of it being horrific. And so you learn to shut that off. And now you're in another situation where that's like blown up even more. And it's like, yeah, I just get this feeling if she lets herself see it, it's going to take her possibly even deeper into something in her own personal history. Well, I was thinking her entire life was about that she could not cure her mother's pain. She couldn't make her mother's pain go away. She became a nurse. Then she got involved with Keith. And if there's something unexamined in there about the pain and agony of I witnessed my mother in so much pain and there was nothing I could do to help her, which is a deep level of helplessness, then all this stuff she was doing in the world must have fed that part of her that said, I'm ending pain. I have power. I something that's on top of, I think, a place she doesn't want to feel. I could not help my mother. Yeah, I mean, I'm just telling you, you guys, I just feel something so deeply around this relationship to horror, the horrific and the grotesque in her experience of that. And Anne, when you brought in that butt plug, 
I mean, as sort of like as funny as it seems on the surface, because also it was in reference to like an S&M dungeon that he was planning for Dawes. And it's just, again, I just feel that like, like the grotesque, the horror and her just, again, like you were saying, laughing. Yeah, I guess I'm just interpreting it as like her, like her discomfort with anything that reminds her of this experience of the horror and the grotesque. But then the other thing I was thinking about for Keith in this is bringing back our Teal Swan conversation. It's like if we do hold him as this guy with some sort of spiritual power that he came in with and and you talked about, I forget how you languaged it, but you talked about kind of the spiritual power being taken over by ego. And just, you know, I remember when we were exploring Teal, really holding this possibility of her coming into the world different. And if that's not held or met, you know, how that may have been a trauma for her that then kind of informed everything she's doing. And just just holding the possibility of something similar for Keith, if like this weird guy came in with access to something that's not mainstream. And then, I mean, in his case, something's, again, thwarted. That's the word I hear, like thwarted, pushed down, suppressed, made wrong, manipulated. You know, just that we really might be seeing someone who who kind of just like, I'm out. <laughs> I was sort of not even fully here to begin with just by virtue of whatever it is I came in with. And now I'm just out. For me, like the bottom line, if we're going to kind of talk about what's important for me about this conversation. So here's this thing that happened in the world. And there was some good stuff in it, some horrific stuff in it. People, a lot of people were involved. If we want to heal the terrible things that happen in the world, then everyone who was involved in that on some level is beholden to looking at their participation because whatever they did to be involved in it, in order for things like this to be dismantled and changed in the world, every person who was involved must look at what happened and deeply so that in whatever ways they go on in life, they can bring some kind of wisdom and constructive energy to how this happens in the world and how to prevent it from happening again. Well, yeah, I was actually going to ask you guys that on a concluding note, and maybe you just spoke to it, but like, is there anything that wants to be said about how we support people, for example, who are listening to this or people in general to be willing to look at themselves, (laughs) to be willing to look at their own participation and things that might not be pretty like what's what's needed or required there if there's anything that hasn't been named or anything that wants to be said about that i mean i have kind of a thought that's coming to mind but i want to punt it to you two first i love the idea of every person listening to this every single person saying how do i do this how do i do this in my life where, whether it's in subtle ways or big ways, how am I participating in ways that is creating harm for other people and not being willing to see it? How have I done that? Because I can guarantee that every single human being listening to this has a place where they have participated in some way in life 
in ways where they didn't want to see things and harm happen, whether they participate in gossip or I, I don't even know, but I just feel like if we want to not make this about us and them, then I have to say, how am I you? How am I Keith? How am I Mark? How am I Sarah? How am I Nikki? How am I all these different people? What What is it in my life that might look this way in a different jacket? Whatever the tenants are that bring you into systems that are promoting something that you're after, that you're looking for, how do you evaluate and identify what your relationship to, say, for instance, in this context, what ethics mean to you, what self-responsibility means to you, what betrayal means to you? Like, how do you hold that for yourself? And is how it's being held for you resonant with the the way that you see or hold it so that you are identifying from the beginning whether or not this is the place for you to get the help and support that you're looking for, whether it's in business, whether for me, it's a little different with the Keith Ranieri versus like Teal Swan, like the people they went after are different people. You know, there's a very vulnerable population with the the teal swan, you know, these people that are looking like last ditch effort, I want to end my life. And then there's this very kind of more business oriented model of Keith Ranieri of promoting, I don't know what it was like self evolution or something like that as a business model, you know, where they're collecting people, like something around how are you stepping into the things that you are stepping into and what is it that's driving that so that you know what you have to hold for yourself in relation to other people supporting you. I just think even on the simplest level, people could ask themselves, look at their lives and say, when have I not spoken up? Mm -hmm. When have I not said something when something really felt wrong? whether it was at the dinner table with my family or whether it was at my job, when have I let somebody else take the fall because I was too scared to speak? I can guarantee you most of us have done that at some point in our lives. And what was it that allowed you to do that? Well, yeah, I think that's such a huge part of it too. Because again, I, I my mind sort of went to Mark Vicente. So I was like, okay, like if I kind of hypothetically hold this process for Mark, it's like, what does this look like for him? And I think to me, it's step one, the willingness to own, you know, my participation, what I got out of it, places where I was cruel, places where I got negative pleasure, where I got off on it. And understanding that's me, I did that, the willingness to feel my remorse or whatever it brings up in me. And then step two to what you're saying, Piper, understanding why did I do that? I think even Nancy Saltzman's therapist spoke to that. It's like, who were you before this that set you up to be susceptible to this? And I think what feels important to name is that it's not about it's not about victimizing yourself and it's not about making excuses. It's just about understanding this because that's the thing for me, the, the moral of this story is I think we're all victims and we're all perpetrators. That's just how this goes by virtue of being human. We're all victims and we're all perpetrators, but it's just understanding again, from this place where I'm holding space for my own humanity. Let me understand 
what were the conditions in my life that set it up such that I was willing to go along with it. And then I feel like step three is sort of once I'm willing to sort of face this inside myself, taking responsibility for it, making whatever amends I need to make. And then I think step four on the heels of that is accepting the like the consequences. And I think, I think, Anne, you were speaking to that about like what it means, you know, in terms of like ethical behavior, what it actually means to stand up, you know, and stand for what's right and to kind of take whatever is going to come at you in a way. And yeah, understanding there might be a price that you pay. There will be a price to pay. There will be for sure. And then also I, and then for me bringing in what I brought in, in terms of your personal journey, you know, if you choose to believe in this stuff, like holding this as part of your journey. Absolutely. Yeah. As part of your spiritual process, wherever it takes you, because you can be sitting in a jail cell and still having a deeply spiritual experience where you are learning about yourself and coming to terms with things and understanding your place in the world. And so I don't know. I, I mean, not to be reductive with my steps. Obviously, it's sort of a multifaceted, nonlinear process. But that, that to me just feels like those are the points that are popping to me of just of when I talk about the willingness to hold your experience from a place of compassion for your own humanity. It's like all these things are possible at once to understand why you did what you did to know the places where you were wrong to know how you were set up for it to also understand yeah, the ways that you participated, what you got out of it, and then the willingness to answer for it. And I also want to say too, in terms of like the conversation of perpetrators and victims, understanding if you allow yourself to see the humanity of someone who has perpetrated something against you, that doesn't mean you're giving them a hall pass. It doesn't mean they don't have to answer for what they've done. It doesn't mean you don't take a stand. I mean, I have no problem with Sarah and Mark being the whistleblowers. That's great. I think it's great what they've done. They galvanized into action and they took this man down. That's not the issue. It's about, yeah, the ad, the binary attitude that comes with it. And to understand you can see the humanity in a perpetrator. And that's not mutually exclusive of wanting them to answer for what they've done and taking a strong stand of saying, hey, you did something here that impacted me and it's not okay. And you can have all these different threads at once. I just want to say one more thing because I'm thinking about Piper and just that also whatever the attitude you had, Piper, in staying at radical aliveness when there were things that felt difficult. And maybe it's about speaking up and feeling at some point like you were being heard. But also the person who does that has the power, if they're brave enough, to change a whole culture. So I think there's also something about just people understanding that they have the power, maybe not always, and in, in which case you would have left, but that the speaking up, the bravery to say, this is what's happening, the coming back again and again and saying things brings profound change. And that that's also something we as human beings are capable of doing. And I think what that takes is back to this not making things binary, not putting the good and bad 
in the conversation to say, this is what makes it hard for me to be here. This is what makes this hard to stay. Is there interest? Is there interest in this community to hear that and to to take a look at what they're doing? And if there is a willingness to do that, then there's, like you said, that's where change actually happens. And I think our culture is one that leaves, like that turns a blind eye that either compartmentalize, betrays ourself and stays for the goodies, or we leave and let people have their experience. But there's something that I've gained from staying because it things did change. They didn't, you know, didn't change because of me per se, but I trusted what was happening because I didn't put it in that place of this is good or this is bad. This is what's happening. This is my experience of what's happening. And there's enough people here that are listening to what I'm saying. They're taking it in. It doesn't mean that change happens right then and there, but there's there's an effort to at least hear what is trying to be spoken. And it's, so what's interesting about this, again, we're talking about the binary, right? Seeing things as either good or bad and like cutting off. And we're talking about when we get out of the binary and we can see ourselves as holding everything and communities as holding everything. And we're not seeing it just as good, bad, right, wrong. That's a really grown up place. And from a grown up place, we have a capacity to bring information in ways that allow for something beautiful to happen, which can be change. And not that I think Keith was open for that. No, that's what made it hard for people to stay. And when people left, this is the differentiation, I think, of what makes something cultish, right? If people are then totally cut off, systematically like harmed after leaving, that that makes people afraid to leave. There was always an open door. You don't have to stay. We want you here. It matters that you're here. We want to hear what you have to bring. And this is something for all of us to hold together. Do you have a final thought, Jamie? You know, when I just check in with myself, when you ask that question, I just feel my own appreciation for humanity and just, you know, how complex it is and how bittersweet this journey is because there is, there is, right? There's this bittersweet pathos to humanity where we enter these lives and things happen to us that have an impact. And then we make unconscious choices. And in the places of unconscious choice, we do harmful things. Now, I do think there's a metaphor here. Again, most of us aren't going to end up in cults, right? But we even do harmful things to ourselves. You know, we make disempowering choices. And then it's at a certain point, and maybe this is sort of the deeper metaphor in all this, if we're doing work on ourselves, we wake up to the lies that we were telling ourselves and perhaps the lies we were initially told that created the lies that we are telling ourselves. And we have to take responsibility for what we've created. And, and again, I just come back to that sweet spot of understanding and owning why I did what I did and where I came from, feeling like the heartbreak of that, taking acknowledgement of the choices I've made and just holding this bittersweet experience of life. Again, if, we, if I do it from a non-binary way, 
oh, my parents are assholes because they did X, Y, or Z. And I'm a victim because this happened to me. And I'm the worst person in the world because then I went and did this, you know, rather than really holding the complexity of as humans, yes, we are in this very interesting <laughs> laboratory here on earth where so much happens unconsciously. And I, I just, like I said, I'm just sort of feeling, I'm feeling my compassion for all of us. And I'm feeling my appreciation for in some ways how difficult this can be and kind of like what you're saying and the emotional maturity that's required to be willing to hold that awareness. And again, to speak up to what needs to be spoken to, to take responsibility for what needs to be taken responsibility for and doing it in a way that's not necessarily blaming anyone and just, and also feeling the beauty of it. Like there's just something that's so rich and beautiful to me about the complexity. And I think, the last thing I'll say is like in that place where I feel that bittersweet pathos of what it is to be in this human experience, I also feel like it connects me to my heart. You know, like I feel my love for my fellow man, for my fellow woman. I feel my love for myself. It's just, you know, this is not the easiest gig <laughs> in the world, which if we're going, you know, depending on what your spiritual belief is, I think that's the very point, right? This is how we sort of learn these lessons and master things. It's it's not meant to necessarily be easy, but I think the last thing I'll say in all this is I think for me anyway, in naming all this stuff and acknowledging this bittersweet process, it does help me to find the grace of it all. And I do think there is something beautiful about all of it. There's just something beautiful about this rich melodrama of life that our spirits have chosen to come down into. And yeah, just the rich drama of it and how powerful we are as creators. You know, again, I just keep thinking about what Keith created, but then everyone was involved in the creation. So everyone who's a part of this is in this larger than life drama where there's so much for them to potentially learn. You know, life is just so rich and dramatic. So that was a long, more than one thought, but that's that's what I'm ending on. That was a good one. Yeah, good. All right, you guys. And do you want to let people know where to find you if they're curious about your work? I'm going to have a new website up soon. Hopefully at the beginning of the year, there will be a website and practitioners of radical aliveness on it. If people are interested in reaching out to a practitioner, Mark Vicente, if you want to reach out, <laughs> if you if you want some help, I suggest that you reach out to Jamie Stein. <laughs> I'm sure he would hate me after hearing this. It's radicalaliveness.org, right? Yeah, radicalaliveness.org, but don't go look at it now. Basically, I'm just getting ready to come back out after three years kind of being out. So things are going to start happening again, but they're not in action now. But there's lots of incredible practitioners. All right. Well, I will just, I'll just throw in a last little plug that since you are coming out of hiding, I know you don't necessarily know exactly what shape or form it's all taking. But like I said up top, I mean, I just have so many people asking me all the time where I get my training. And the truth is, I trained with Anne and... I just think the space that you hold and cultivate in the work of radical aliveness is incredibly deep. I think it's incredibly powerful. It's absolutely informed the space that I'm holding in my work and in my podcast. So for anyone who responds to this space, anyone who's looking to participate, 
and something that could help them get into deeper touch with themselves and their own gifts, I, I really do highly encourage you to when the website's ready, like go get on the mailing list and does do workshops in different parts of the country. And um, I just can't speak highly enough for the work and what it's brought me and what I've seen it bring to other people. And I think it's important. So I'm giving you a little plug. Thank you, James. <laughs> You're welcome. And then yeah, as always, find me on Instagram, Jamie Stein, J-A-M-I-E-S-T-E-I-N. I'm also now on TikTok under Housewives Empath. And, you know, as the new year is starting, if you're curious about getting more information about what the drama of your life is revealing to you, you can go check out my work at my website, hollywoodreadings.com and send me an email there if you're curious about it. That said, I'm recording this on December 28th. So it will already be the new year by the time you're hearing this. But still in this moment, I'm wishing all of you a happy, healthy, restful, meaningful new year. I'm so grateful to everyone who listens to this podcast. And I'm so grateful for all your messages. I truly, 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 truly cannot express enough just how much it touches me to hear you and to hear your engagement. And um, it just makes me feel really blessed and fortunate. Having said that, I will see you guys on the flip side. Bye.